In a world of podcasts about movies, sci-fi, TV, and podcasts about sci-fi, TV, and movies, two women chose to add their voices to the fray. Two sisters. One woman was willing to go to any length to explain away plot holes and bad pacing. I don't think, first of all, much like the entirety of this film, I don't think we're supposed to ask a lot of questions. The other, though, had no such sympathies. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Together, they joined forces to highlight the good, the bad, and the truly bizarre. This is See You Next Week in Space. So it's the Christmas season. Twinkle, twinkle, twinkle. Jingle, jingle, jingle. Uh, a little bit of elves and Christmas snow. And that's all I got. But it's Christmas, everyone. It's Christmas Day. Merry Christmas. Yeah. No, I mean, it's not Christmas Day yet. This is... This is coming out in sometime in December. Some some week. Oh, it's in Christmas December. Day to me. As soon as it hits November, it's like Merry Christmas. It's Christmas time. Literally, as soon as the clock ticks past midnight on October 31st, you Correct. are on to the Christmas. Spooky train. season over. Christmas season on. Begun. Um yes. I mean, I do appreciate that you at least recognize spooky season for its full length. Um, and, and then have like the good sense to turn to Christmas, but because I'm in Australia and Australians are only just kind of cottoning on to Halloween, uh, Christmas has already gone full bore nuts here and it is. Oh, really? Oh, so they. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Oh, so I didn't really know that about Australia and Halloween, but so when does Christmas start there? I may have to move there. <laughs> um, so today, just for like transparency listeners, I am speaking on the morning of November the 13th. Amy is speaking on the evening of November the 12th in the United States. Correct. And um, easily things have been full bore for the past three weeks, at least. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, and like fully, like in the stores, like everything. Yes. Like. Yes. I mean, like wow, we're cer- okay. we certainly ratcheted up probably a week ago. I would say I noticed yeah. an even bigger uptick. Um, but yeah, yeah. Halloween was not even registering. There were like by when I was doing my shopping for my Halloween party, I was mm-hmm. already seeing like the big store windows in the city being blocked out. Because they were already doing their Christmas, like, displays in those windows behind, like, you know, paper. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I love that. (laughs) It's Um, kind of, and because as well, they don't have Thanksgiving either. So there is literally no break to the Christmas train here. Oh, man. Yeah. So this, oh, man, can you imagine if we didn't have Halloween? Oh, gosh. If we didn't have Halloween or Thanksgiving in in the States, people would start celebrating Christmas like it would be full blown in September, like August. (laughs) And I like by the time Christmas Day arrived, I always feel an incredible sense of relief when Christmas Day arrives. Um, 
But well, the day itself is like a super letdown, in my opinion. But well, like, that's because you get so jazzed about it in the buildup. Um, well, but I, like, I just like the season, and when the season is over, everybody knows like definitively and objectively, January is like the worst month of the entire year. Like, there's I personally nothing fun feel in February sucks more, but. Either okay, one is both. bad. I'll say both. Yeah. Like, yeah, they're one and two, the worst two months. Yeah. Um, um, so that's, and I think that's maybe also why Christmas gets such a build up here in Australia because it's like the official start to summertime. So people oh, And that's get, so funny. And, yeah. So people huh. get real keyed up about it. Um, yeah. I love but, that. So we're now in the Christmas time, doing our Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. And as happens to, we've, this is now our third year in a row of doing Christmas science fiction movies. And mm-hmm. every year I feel concerned when this season is upon us because I feel like there aren't enough science fiction There really Christmas are movies. though. But then this year I had this excellent idea to incorporate Hallmark movies, etc. Well, yeah, into well, yeah, our but even remit. like, yeah, and I mean, I just even like looked up a holiday. Well, I mean, there's some that can kind of like, if we're talking like holiday horror, and some of that horror can kind of squish into sci-fi. Sure. sure. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of weird ass ones out there, and yes, if you include Hallmark. Because they have so damn many. Like, they have They've pretty much... every single... Uh, yes. Everything. Every type of scenario you can imagine is, like, it's there. Yeah. Well, like, that's, like, when last week I discovered there were three different movies about optometrists that Hallmark had done. Like... Correct. Um, that is just how things go there. So we've got a whole... Yes. ...remit of interesting science fiction Christmas movies for us to discuss over the next few weeks, listeners. So welcome to see you next week in space. I am Sarah <laughs> Walsh, and I'm here with my sister and co-host, Amy Walsh. And I will say that, so the way we're going to do Christmas season this year is that I will be choosing, I guess, two of our movies, and Amy will be choosing the Hallmark slash Lifetime uh, <laughs> slash, they don't have to necessarily be that, but just the schmaltzier Christmas movies. <laughs> And yeah, um, and so I chose a movie for this week to kick things off in in traditional see you next week in space style um, to mm-hmm. where the movie is impenetrable, um, mm-hmm. very weird. I'm not mm-hmm. even entirely sure what happened in it. Um, or I'm, like, I'm a positive. I don't know what happened. In why it. did it need to exist? Um, it didn't. These, these are things that I think are perennial questions in this yeah. podcast. There was, there was literally one thing in this movie that I liked. Literally one singular thing that I was. It's not even like something that happened. It was um, a wardrobe. Thing that I liked in this movie, mm. one singular thing, and I that was it. I think I might the rest know. I, hated. I think I might know what you're, or I have a hunch about what you might be talking about. But yeah, um, we'll see if I turn out to be correct in my. Uh, I'm sure assumption. you probably are. Um, 
But so, Amy, why don't you tell everyone what we're talking about this week? So we are talking about a movie from 1985, which is the year I was born. So, like, it's a good year. But (laughs) the movie we're talking about is Brazil. Correct. And that's all I could tell you. It came out on December 18th of 1985. So it was, I mean. released. Yeah. Um, oh, I was going to say released in February in the UK, which, okay. But it is bad. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, part of... To so, me. Uh, when I... I have seen this movie on lists of Christmas science fiction movies for the past few years, and I've always been hesitant about it um, for a number of reasons. <sighs> Um, but I figured and this was the year to give it a try. Um, yeah, I, w- I will say like the Christmas is it's in it, but it's very much like it doesn't feel Christmassy. Like when no. I want to, I get that there's like some movies out there where it's people like want to fight over whether it's a Christmas movie or not, and like whatever. Sure. Um, Die Hard, I think, is right. one where people are like, it's a Christmas movie. It's not a Christmas movie. Whatever. Right. But. I like I like my Christmas movies to be Christmas oriented. <laughs> um, I can appreciate ones that are less that, but like I, if I'm wanting to watch it for a, I wouldn't call this one like very Christmassy no, because all of the other shit in it is not very merry. <laughs> no, definitely not. I think the reason Christmas is in this movie is because this movie is meant to make various statements about, like, commercialism and, Mm. you know, like, uh, consumption culture and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. So I think that's probably why this Christmas motif is there, is just to kind of supercharge that kind of, you know, because technically these people that we watch in this movie could be having these same situations at any time of year. The Christmas part just like... Oh, yeah, Christmas is... Yeah, Christmas is in the background and just like yeah. a sort of like extra in the movie, if you will. And has it's not like and at various moments, I think this is the other kind of part of the reason why Christmas is used in any movie uh, where it where Christmas is not the central point of the movie. The mm-hmm. main reason Chris, Christmas is there is because Christmas and really all holidays are just a heightened moment. And and there and so that yes. allows for some more theatricality or like strange, <laughs> um, strange juxtapositions of things that wouldn't happen in other ways yeah. and at other times. And so that I think is really what Christmas is meant to function here as a part of like just That's kind of true, but like creating these weird visuals perhaps or like kind of strange. Um, yeah, strange kind of pairings of ideas and events. Yeah. So that's really what this is about. Um, I will. So this movie is called A Christmas Science Fiction Movie, and the movie is called Brazil. So we've already said that yeah. Christmas doesn't seem to matter to the science fiction movie. Other <laughs> important thing, movies called Brazil, it is not set in Brazil. There is nothing okay. Brazilian about the movie. Okay, that was going to be one of my questions at some point was why is it called that? So, according to Wikipedia, which I'm inclined mm-hmm. to believe, 
the movie is called Brazil because there's that song that the main character keeps humming and singing and listening to at various moments. And that song is Ari Bajoso's Aquarela do Brasil, which, um, as you can deduce, is written by a Brazilian person. <laughs> um, okay. But there is an English language version performed by Jeff Mulder, and that version uh, is referred to just simply as Brazil. The song is known as Brazil, hmm. and it's fairly well known or would have been at the time among British audiences. This is a British movie originally, so that's why the movie mm -hmm. got named Brazil. Now, huh. as I was saying to you in our production call, this movie was inspired by the book 1984 and in fact was originally going to be called 1984 and a half um because i would be qu i would question if that's even legal is that legal to do like because yeah, i mean i would think that it was more connected if they called it something like that like whatever anyway okay so because this was being this movie was being written as the year 1984 was looming, um, mm -hmm. and as we also discussed and I discovered when you asked me about this, there was an actual film adaptation of the movie 1984 that came out in the year 1984, and so that was also part of the reason why Terry Gilliam, who is the writer and director of this movie, um, had to change the title to something else. Um, so, and, and again, this is yet another, it is and it isn't, because Terry Gilliam famously said that this was kind of inspired by 1984, but also famously he never read 1984. So... That's hilarious. So it's not about Brazil. It's called Brazil. It's inspired by 1984. No one's read 1984 who's responsible for making this thing. It's set at Christmas time, but Christmas time doesn't matter. Like, um, so weird. So many a, weird choices. Yeah. It's a lot of different layers of stuff. And maybe that's also sort of the point, because I would say part of one of the other reasons I often pushed this movie off in the past couple of years is because I'm not much of a Terry Gilliam fan. Um, Mm -hmm. He does a lot of really absurdist stuff, and which I would say, even though this is dark, there's quite a lot of absurdism here as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so maybe that's part of it, too, is like just everything that you think this movie is, it actually isn't. It's something else. Um, now, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, this movie was quite successful in Europe. Um, and then... So, like, it gets to the, it's released in the U.S. at the end of 1985. It's released in the U.K. at the start of 1985. And across 1985, it's released all throughout Europe and does pretty well. It does not do so well in the United States. Um, and in fact, so, it was so kind of um, not to the tastes of American audiences that executives at Universal who were responsible for releasing it in the United States wanted the movie to be cut so that it would be shorter because it clocks in at 142 minutes. Um, Way too long. Very long. Very long indeed. 
Um, so they wanted it to be at least 20 minutes shorter, and they also wanted it mm-hmm. to have a happy ending. Um, <laughs> neither thing happened. Um, Terry Gilliam was not no, a fan of say. these choices. Terry Gilliam was not a fan of these choices. And um, because the movie had started performing well in Europe, that gave him kind of the leverage to say, look, I'm not going to do that for an American audience. Um, Mm. And while I appreciate and respect like an artist's like choice to do their movie however they want, I would have liked 20 minutes to be taken from this movie. And I would have liked if there could have been a happy ending. Like... Both things I would. I mean, but same. But I and I care way less about the happy ending part. But like in terms of like your artistic whatever. Sure, sure. But but I really really resent people who think their movies need to be a hundred years long. Just like for what? Just like ah, I don't know. People think that their ideas are so goddamn important (laughs) that they need to be on the screen for multiple hours and I just like I hate that because it's so boring (laughs) yeah and I mean it this and we talked about this as well like both of us really had a hard time getting through this in one sitting neither one of us could do it so this Um, no this is I will, I'm going to say right at the top, this is up there for me. I haven't decided yet, but it's up there for me with one of the worst things we've ever watched. Like, it really it is was a type struggle. of movie that... It was a struggle. It's the type of movie that rubs me the wrong way because it's like... It feels like it thinks it's so clever, and sure. I don't like that. I mean, and the thing that I would say is a kind of a shame. I Like, when I... I think I even said to you in the email where I said, we're going to watch this movie. I think I said even then, full disclosure, I think I'm not going to like this. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I, and I want, to, and the thing is I want to like it because the premise is things that I generally like. Like I liked that it was meant to be kind of inspired by 1940s noir and mystery movies. Like there was a bit mm-hmm. of a mystery in here. I liked certain aspects of how this looked. Um, the way uh, Gilliam described it, this the point of this was to kind of have it be a version of the 1980s that someone thought up in the 1940s, basically. Like what people in the 1940s mm-hmm. thought the 1980s would look like. Um, and so mm-hmm. that's actually called retrofuturism, in case you want to learn a fancy term. Um and kind of we saw that okay. we saw a bit of that actually I want to say in Gattaca, right? Like that kind of like it's the future, but there's also oh. kind of like a weird sort of like mid-20th century vibe happening yeah. as well. Um and so I yeah. like all of that. But that stuff. one was much more digestible. Yes. I mean, well, because yeah, because that's the thing, like it's all of those things in theory could be cool because I like I have no particular problem with noir or with, you know, that like a mystery whatever all of that stuff you said I have no problem with any of that they may not be like my first choice in terms of genre but like sure that could all be fine and that could all be intelligible but I feel like they purposefully made this unintelligible (laughs) yeah this (laughs) was just about it this was just a bit of a slog and 
I and even yeah. more strange still, like when we talk about the cast, which we'll do now, um, I like a lot of these actors. These actors are in other things yeah. that I like. And yeah. this is an this is a really kind of amazing cast. We'll only talk about when we talk about the cast, we'll only talk about kind of the main players, but there will be various opportunities to mention cameos by various people. Um, you know, so it's like I want I really want to like this and it has ingredients of things I like. And yet somehow yeah. it just is Still not for sucks. me. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the cast, the main character is Sam Lowry, played by a 38-year-old Jonathan Price. Um, so one of the things you mentioned is you couldn't tell if this was meant to be in the UK or in the United States. The yeah. truth is it doesn't really matter. But because it's a British production, there's a fair amount of very famous British actors in it. Um, yeah. Jonathan Price being one. Um, this apparently turns out to be his breakout role as an actor. Um, Hmm. he kind he comes through as we've run across this a lot. I think when it comes to British actors, um, he studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art or RADA in London. And then that often, in my opinion, seems to be quite a feeder into the theater scene, especially. Yeah. Um, So that's where Mm -hmm. he kind of does quite a bit of his early days. And then, um, again, because I think also we've probably talked about this a bit, that, like, the entertainment industry in the UK is really good, but I I think is a bit smaller than what exists in the United States. And so if you're doing well in theater, you're probably also doing TV and movies. Like, in a way that, sure, you would be doing that in the States too, but... Um, people can kind of stick to one genre maybe a little bit more, I think, in the U.S. than Yeah. Um, yeah, than well, because in- I think that, like, I, I really don't know how it works in the U.K., but, like, I feel like lots of the television there is, like, similar to, like, old school Hollywood where it was, like, one studio or one, sure. like, yeah. group almost. Uh-huh. And, yeah. like, the BBC does, like, everything. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, that's not really true. I don't know. I'm sure there's No, there's other stuff, but I think but it, especially in this era like pre-2000, I think that's mm-hmm. even more likely to be accurate, you know, in terms yeah. of like how stuff is done. So, he's doing And even theater. the West End is much smaller than yeah. like yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. it's still just as just as prestigious, but it's just a it is a smaller circle, I think. Yeah. Right. So, he's doing both of those things. His first IMDb credit is in 1972. Um, And then he's been in a bunch of stuff that I kind of forgot he was in. Um, He plays... This is a movie that used to terrify me as a child. Um, He plays Mr. Dark and Something Wicked This Way Comes. um, I don't know what that is. Which I think... It's like a kid's... How would I describe it? It's like as if Stephen, uh, Stephen King wrote something for children. That's okay. kind of like what goosebumps. It is. No scarier to me than goosebumps <laughs> is okay. most of the time. Okay. Anyway, okay. Um, so he's in that. He plays Juan Perón in the Madonna hmm. Evita movie. Oh, um, really? 
Yeah, he makes a number of appearances as like a governor in Pirates of the Caribbean movies, like particularly Hmm. the earlier ones. Um, Apparently he was in Game of Thrones for a while. Um, mm-hmm. And most recently, these are all things I, I don't watch: Pirates of the Caribbean, Game Game of Thrones. Yeah, I hadn't, I wasn't aware of much of this uh, at yeah. all. But um, the thing that I actually only just now noticed because the newest season of The Crown has come out, and Netflix is telling me I should watch it. He also plays um, Prince Philip in that. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. So. Obviously, pretty big deal of a guy. Um, his yeah. love interest in the movie is a character called Jill Layton, played by an American actress, Kim Grease, who was 27 when this movie came out. Um, she was mm-hmm. born in Connecticut uh, and then spent her late teens modeling uh, in Europe uh, and then tra- tra- is in the midst of transitioning to acting when she gets this role. So... I, I included this information for you. She was in Chud the year before. I don't know what that is. Oh, that's that one. I would have thought you'd known it. It's um, a horror movie about people who live under the city and are like mole people, kind of. Whoa. Maybe I, that maybe that sort of rings a bell. Huh. Yeah. We but may watch it. But now I want to watch it. We <laughs> yeah. should. That's we may watch it someday. And so she's in that movie. She's in this movie. She is the mom in Homeward Bound, which we yes, also like. That Incredible is, Journey. Homeward that Bound. is definitely, yes. That is the one that I was like, I saw her and I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out who she is without looking it up. And I was just <laughs> looking at her face and I was like, I know she's somebody's mom. And I was literally like, she's like a mom. She's somebody's mom and her hair's a little bit curlier. And like, I have to, like, I was like really, I was like willing it. And then I was like, oh my God. Um, yeah, I came up with it without looking it up. And I was very proud well of Well done. I, cause I would not have spotted that. Cause it has been a very long time since I watched Homeward Bound. Um, oh, I love me some Homeward Bound. So. I know. I mean, I'm, I'm picturing <laughs> Sally Fields' voice as that cat right now. I like, love it. Oh, um, my God. I love it. Yeah. And so, but it seemed to me like her acting career never really took off. Um, like, she, she was in some bad. stuff, but it just never really came to fruition. And so her last credit was in 2001. Um. Hmm. Then we go to a character, Mrs. Ida Lowry, that's Sam Lowry's mother, (laughs) played by a Mm -hmm. 56-year-old Catherine Helmond, um, who is excellent. And I immediately recognized her, and I was like, I have not seen this actress in such a long time, but she's so good. And it turns out she's in a lot more things than I realized, which I may try and revisit some of. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. She started on the stage in the 50s, um, but actually didn't really get her big break until she was already, um, you know, pretty, like, a mature woman. Like, she was not an ingenue person by the time she was making No, she's splash. someone, yeah, I feel like she's also, she's definitely someone who, like, was built to play an older lady, if that makes sense. Yeah. That is, yeah. Some people really like hit their stride when they're young. And as they get older, it's like, oh, this isn't really, this doesn't work. Other people like you have to wait till you're like, 
it's just interesting how that works. But she's definitely one who, uh, yeah, her found her footing. That, her, basically, her bread, her bread and butter is being like a bitchy old lady. <laughs> yeah, like she basically didn't really hit her stride until her late forties. I would say, yeah, acting wise, mm-hmm. um, because um, she stars as Jessica Tate on Soap. Um, which was, of course, like a send-up of soap operas. That was a primetime thing in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, She's also seemingly a a Gilliam-preferred actor because she was also in Time Bandits, um, his movie Mm. made before this one. I had forgotten that she plays the crazy mom of Goldie Hawn in Overboard. Um, Oh, yeah. But she's She's great great in that, that. And she's kind of a bit Mm -hmm. like this mom. In that movie. Totally. Um, yes. And then, of course, most well-known, she plays Mona Robinson on Who's the Boss um, yeah. for most of the 80s, I would say. Um, what? We don't have to go into a whole Who's the Boss thing. I mean, I remember that, but I'm just trying to picture what that character was about. Like That character was like was, this one. She was like a mom who was I like... I know she was... Or, well, she was the grandma, but, but she was, like, the grandma, the grandma who was, like, glamorous and also a bit wacky, you know, like, yeah. she was the she grandma. Was, but she was Tony Danza's mom? No, she was Judith Light's mom. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. and I she, I want to say, <laughs> yeah, I want to say she was, like, often, well, like, one, of course, she was quite indulgent to her grandchildren, Alyssa Milano and the other guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but also her whole thing was like, I can't remember if Judith Light's parents were supposed to have been divorced or if she was a widow, but either way, like often Mona's stories had to do with like some kind of weird dating thing she was doing, (laughs) you know, in her fifties and early sixties. Okay. Um, so it was, so it was like a very golden girl kind of situation that she was doing, but quite elegant. Like she was like. That's also how this character was like. She was kind of like a society lady yeah. or something. Yeah, um, she comes across as like she could like I've never seen her play not a rich lady. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, like, I haven't I don't know. either. Um, she was also in a film that I pointed out to you called A Grandpa for Christmas. Uh don't totally I both know love about. and hate the sign. I like love and hate the sound of that. It like makes me uncomfortable, but I kind of want to know what it I'm is. I'm concerned about what it means for the grandpa. Yeah. And for everybody else Same. involved. But Same. I also am curious about what might be happening. Um, like is the grandpa and, the Christmas present? Like what I does that mean? Anyway. And then I'm just picturing like a man who's got Alzheimer's who doesn't even know where he is. Like. Yeah, and they're like, you take care of your grandpa for Christmas. They're like, we yeah. pass him around at Christmas time. Yeah, it's yeah, uncomfortable, but I, I am curious. I um, and then what doesn't surprise me, even at all, is that since she was such a hardworking actress, like her whole life, she basically worked right up until her death in 2019 mm. Um, mm. in varying capacities. And then the final character okay. who sort of mostly matters to the story is a character called Mr. Kurtzman. That's Sam Lowry's boss. This is played by a 54-year-old Ian Holm, who also studied at RADA. Um, He also worked with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, And we've actually talked about him before because he played the android, Ash, in Alien, 
long, and that we haven't talked about Alien in a very long time, but we did. Oh yeah, talk I don't about remember him. that. Um, he is the one who's is the he the Android's, Milky guy? Yes, Milky Man. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> so that's, that's it. Like that's like all I remember we, from that movie. It's a good thing okay. to remember. So that's all we need in terms <laughs> of like main characters uh, important to the plot. Um, the movie begins with the song Brazil playing over clouds. And then we, as mm. per usual with a science fiction movie, this is about where the only kind of true science fiction-y stuff really that we get is here. Um, we get mm-hmm. first a Chiron tells us it's 8.49 p.m. Um, and then mm-hmm. another one that says somewhere in the 20th century. So again, it doesn't really matter where Thanks this for is being happening. clear. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we just know it's somewhere and sometime in the 20th century. But I think from all yeah. of the various clues, we ha- we know that it can't be any earlier than 1975. Like, it's not the first part of the 20th century. It is the latter part. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we open up with watching a news broadcast. Well, first an ad for ducts. Uh, by the that you can get specialty designer ducts in your home, um, provided by Central Services. Um, this will this sets something up that then becomes, I guess maybe we might call it a running sight gag in the movie. Yeah. Uh, everywhere we go, all the ducks. There are just ducts, and I'm just to be clear, listeners. What Amy and I are saying is. D-U-C-T. <laughs> a duct. Um, and there are many, many a duct um, everywhere in this movie, in every room. Yeah. And I don't really know what the point of that is or what it's meant to imply. There was none. But I think what it's supposed to... Because also, like, when they do those things where they, like, the, open the walls or cut through a, cir- a circle in the floor... The walls are all filled with machinery as well and other types of ducts and things. And so I think we're meant to understand that this something in something has happened to this world where where we just need all types of ducts at all time. Everything is just like super mechanized or something. Um, I don't really know why. But so we're seeing this and then. The, the kind of camera pans outward and we see an entire shop front with all this, as we usually would expect, where all the TVs are playing the same channel. Um, and then the, and what is playing is a news broadcast. Then the storefront explodes. We cut to black and we get the title card that says Brazil. And intriguingly and setting us up for something that I did not expect because I didn't know what to expect with this movie. We get some like kind of menacing music that tells us we're kind of going to be watching some sort of a thriller or something like this is not, Mm -hmm. um, this is not lighthearted, whatever it is. Then we return back to the scene and we're watching a news broadcast through a kind of damaged television now and we are in what the broadcast has is a character called Mr. Helpman, who is the head of the Ministry of Information. 
which we'll learn more mm-hmm. about shortly. And he's talking about terrorists. So, of course, as the viewer, we're meant to infer that <clears throat> the explosion we just saw was because of terrorists. Yeah. While- and to be, just for, like, transparency, the first sit-down watch I did of this, I was already asleep at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so just like so. Also, for transparency, what time was it when that happened? Like what uh, time of day? Like, like two p.m. <laughs> oh god! Now, in uh, fairness to the, in fairness to the movie, that is a sleepy time of day for many of us. But <laughs> I still take true. your point that that was bad. Um. <laughs> so then we go. I always like an, a good object fade. So we like close up on the television and we go through the television. And we arrive at the Ministry of Information on the other side of a different television that is playing the same news broadcast. And it's not totally clear to me if the guy is supposed to be a scientist that we're seeing, but he's wearing like a white lab coat. And Mm -hmm. he's in the middle of doing some paperwork, but he gets distracted because there's a fly going around the room. And so we see... Well, the other thing that was weird about this movie is there's a lot of, like... The other thing. <laughs> I mean, there's many a thing. But one of the yeah. overarching things that I found really, like, I didn't get it, like, was there seemed to be what I might call in other circumstances physical humor bits that were being yeah. done. Like, kind of wacky, like... Keystone cop style stuff. Uh-huh. And there and that's what was happening in this movie. Is like so on the one hand, we're the camera's cutting back and forth to all these papers being printed out saying that a um a criminal called Archibald Buttle it needs to be taken into custody. Meanwhile, yeah. the guy in the white coat is trying to smash a fly that's flying through his office by, like, standing up on top of a file cabinet. Like, all kinds of weird stuff is happening. Yeah. And in the process of smashing the fly, which the person does manage to do eventually, something, I can't remember if it was, like, some goop or just something knocks the typewriter that the, these printouts are coming out on. But all of a sudden, one of the various papers changes the name from Archibald Tuttle to Archibald Buttle. And this is where the mystery, such as it is, of this movie begins. Um, Mm. We then follow into an apartment block where we see the Buttle family. Um, It is not Christmas yet, but it it is Christmas season, and so the family is reading a Christmas carol. Um, Mm -hmm. Up above, their upstairs neighbor, Jill, is in the tub watching television. And again, another bit of a head-scratcher. Did you notice that when she's taking her bath, the water is gray? Uh, I didn't notice that, but that is gross. It was really gross, and I was like, ugh. And then I was like, oh, I guess it's like, because, so here's the thing. I think what's also, again, which could have been interesting, but didn't work the way I, I thought it was interesting, which is, and we talked about this with The Purge, like, 
when I watch someone bathing in dirty water in the quote unquote future, but for me, it's 2022. The way that reads to me is like, oh, there's a water crisis in this place. Um, Mm -hmm. Water has become very valuable. And so you can't get clean water. And if you do get clean water, it's for drinking. It's not for bathing, you know, like that sort of thing. So that's, that's how I read that. But I think what it's, what it was probably meant to do in the movie was not about water scarcity, but rather to emphasize this like kind of, oh, the machines are everywhere. And so like machine oil gets into water, you know, like something like that instead. Yeah. Um, Or things just can never be fully clean somehow. Um, Yeah. So she's up in the dirty water. The police bust through her front door and they do something which then later on is established as like, I guess, standard practice where they use, because she's living above the Buttle family. The Mm -hmm. police want to cut a hole in her floor, which is the Buttle's ceiling, and like kind of attack from above by surprise. And so that is what happens. They take Archibald Buttle into custody, and that's when they put him into that bag that you said you didn't like. I hated that. It was like a straight jacket, but... It or like a prisoner outfit. I'm not even sure how you would describe it, but it like literally went over their their heads. Yeah, they get zipped into it in such a way that like yeah, the their legs are free, but then their torso is in like a straight jacket, and then their face is covered entirely. Um, yeah, and so that happens, and then. The Ministry of Information, which is taking Archibald Buttle, gives his wife, Mrs. Buttle, a receipt for her husband. Um, And again, this will become a theme that's further developed throughout the film. There's a lot of emphasis on paperwork in this future and in this society. And as well, because it's also meant to be the kind of this statement on extreme capitalism it is like saying like we know your husband is going to be gone and then that represents a material value so we're going to give you a receipt for him mm-hmm. um needless to say the family is extremely upset um yeah. and things don't improve from here meanwhile <laughs> Uh, no, it gets worse. Like it gets, it gets progressively a lot worse. Every, and I don't even mean like that. This the scenario for that character gets worse. Like the movie gets worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I would say both things are true. Um, yeah, both. So we then arrive at the Ministry of Information ourselves, and we're in the records room, um, which has a lot of pneumatic tubes where you can like send files up and down. So anyway, in the Ministry of Information Records Department, Mr. Kurtzman learns of the Buttle-Tuttle mistake. And for whatever reason, it seems like his top uh, aide or worker or whatever you'd call him is this guy, Sam Lowry. But Sam Mm -hmm. isn't in the office at the moment. And so he Mm -hmm. calls to find out where Sam is. The way we're introduced to Sam 
is through his dream. So do you want to try and explain what he looks like in his dream? Well, I'll be honest. I didn't realize this was the same actor for like up until maybe the last time they showed him like this. Okay. I'm gonna, he looks I'm very gonna different. Yeah. So he looked to me like, hmm, how do I describe this? He sort of looked like <laughs> an 80s hairband man mm-hmm. in the face because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he had like blonde long hair and like star boy makeup. I don't even know what you yeah, call it. But yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, like glitter, like it was glitter, glitter star and I shapes feel like, like on his face. And it was like asymmetrical, I want to say. Yeah. Like, yeah, it wasn't the same yeah. makeup on both sides of his face. Yeah. And he's wearing like a jumpsuitish thing that matches the makeup and big old wings and he's like flying through the sky. Yeah. And they're big these are huge angel wing things that yeah. also have kind of a like almost a, like a steampunky quality to them. Like they look mechanical yeah. in some way. Um so he's flying yeah. through the air, having this great day. Then we hear this terrible noise, and it's the noise of his phone ringing in the real world, bringing him out of his dreams. And Kurtzman says, you know, we've got this problem at the office. I need you in here. Um, When we see Sam arrive to the Ministry of Information, uh, we see kind of like on the one hand, there's a variety of strange kind of scanning devices uh, that are important to surveillance. Um, And he runs into his friend Jack, um, who normally I would not bother to mention, but Jack comes back in important ways in the later parts of the film. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. This is also when Sam gets his first look at Jill, who has come to the Ministry of uh, Information to ask about her neighbor, Mr. Buttle, who has gone missing. Right. But uh, she cannot get information about him because she does not have the correct paperwork. So she is sent away in a huff. Meanwhile, uh, in the Ministry of Information, in Mr. Kurtzman's office, uh, Sam is looking into the records uh, to try and figure out what happened with this Buttle-Tuttle confusion Um, he confirms that there was a paperwork problem which led to a division of the Ministry of Information called Information Retrieval to collect Buttle rather than Tuttle. And (laughs) the main thing that Kurtzman wants to ensure is that the mistake is not in his department. In other words, that records is not responsible for this mistake Um, which apparently through some magic of paperwork that I don't understand, um, Sam is able to confirm that this is a, the fault lies with information retrieval. So uh, that's great from Kurtzman's perspective. (laughs) Kurtzman also then reveals, um, he's like, oh, he starts kind of talking shit about information retrieval and then he, there's this bit, again, there are these bits that happen where I'm like, is this supposed to be funny? Like, I can't tell. Was but any of this supposed to be funny? Like, I mean, did you I'm laugh once? I'm not sure. I, oh, I didn't laugh. 
But that doesn't okay, necessarily well, here's, mean anything. Well, yes and no. So, like... I recognize that humor is subjective and there are things that I find funny that plenty of people would be like that you're crazy. Like but, fart the movie. Like fart the movie. No, I think that's objectively <laughs> funny. <laughs> and, and not the movie itself, but just like, like the, the idea that it actually of exists. Such a thing. Yeah. 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 Um, but the um but this like when you have to say like is some when you have to ask if something is funny or if something was supposed to be funny, it's not. If you, it's probably not. Worked. Don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's, That's yeah, it's true. not worked on you anyway. Let's say, like, let's give it. I guess we'll give it the benefit of doubt and say maybe some people find it funny, but yeah, because like, I the did bit- not laugh one single time in this movie. And well, and that's also mm, what I was gonna maybe say. Maybe once, and again, like it's not about any lines but it's more like again like not really laughing isn't the right word but it's like a cleverness of a certain costume sure piece. sure yeah so it may well be that some of this was funny to somebody but it wasn't to me um so because <laughs> like either. they do this bit where kurtzman like repeatedly is like yeah inform- information retrieval sucks and sam's like yeah they're terrible and he's like, you would never take a promotion at information retrieval. And he's like, no, of course. And he's like, you really wouldn't ever take a promotion at information retrieval. And it's like, no. And he's like, you really, really wouldn't. No. And then he's like, you just got a promotion to information retrieval. And so I was like, I guess that's funny. I don't, you know, I was it meant to be? I wasn't like, sure. Uh, well, it's like, that seems sort of like inside office humor, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, we don't know what that, like, we don't work for that company or like whatever, you know what I mean? That's like someone being like, oh my God, that my boss said this thing today and you have to be like, pretend like you care. <laughs> yeah. So what it turns out is that Sam's mother, Mrs. Ida Lowry, is quite powerful And she feels that Sam is not, like, living up to his potential. So she has arranged this promotion because she is friends with Mr. Helpman. Um, And Sam is like, no, no, I want to stay in records. I'm going to go talk to my mom and sort this out. He arrives at, I wasn't sure. I called this a spa here. (sighs) I'm not sure Uh that it is a spa because... Do you recall what is happening to Mrs. Lowry when we see her for the first time? Oh, you know, I don't, I feel like this is one of the many moments where I was like uh, distracted. But I do remember sort of um, a visual from even just like the trailer or something that I saw where she's like sitting in a dark room and it's sort of like a horror movie, really. And they're, like, pulling yes. at her face yes. like some type of, like, creep show. Yeah, her face is getting pulled all around and being held in place by weird, like, binder clips almost, really. <laughs> and, like, there's some, like, coming off of her forehead. There's two really prominent ones coming off of her cheeks. Um, and she's sitting in a chair and that's the whole thing is like the scene around it suggests like, you know, a very luxuriant spa, but then this is happening and she's got this plastic surgeon called Dr. Jaffe, who is played actually pretty incredibly by Jim Broadbent, 
um, who I recognized straight away from a number of different British things. Um, Mm. and he's kind of talking like, so it's this typical thing, which again, you see in a lot of movies where like Mrs. Lowry and Sam are talking about how she won't leave him alone, uh, professionally and in his life. Meanwhile, the plastic surgeon and her are talking together about plans for her face and, um, it's facelift. And as, so in addition to the binder clips, as this scene is going on, Jim Broadband is like, painting weird paints onto her face that are meant to be, I guess, some sort of like guide point to the plastic surgery that's going to happen. And then all I know is that by the end of the scene, uh, Mona from Who's the Boss not only has these like, clearly she's got some kind of a mask on that's making the skin look pulled the way it is. And so she's got binder clips all around her face. And then Jim Broadbent has like wrapped saran wrap around her face. And he says something like, you're going to look great or whatever. And it's just like, oh boy. Oh, um, so we then, it's unclear quite how much time passes, but basically it seems like the reason why, Sam joined his mother in the spa in the first place is because they it was on the way to the restaurant where they're having lunch together. And uh-huh. he and his mother are meeting um, a woman named Mrs. Terrain and her daughter Shirley uh, at uh-huh. this restaurant. Now, one of the things that I found really intriguing in this scene, and I had a hard time looking away from it, was that um, Ida Lowry is wearing a leopard print boot as a hat. This is the one thing I liked about this movie. Um, <laughs> was this was this weirdness of this hat, uh, boot hat. Yeah. Um, because it oddly worked. Like that it sounds did. crazy. Like if to hear it, but if you saw the visual, like it's still crazy. But it like kind of works because. The type of hat that it mimics is also not a An hat unusual that like has a function. Yeah, like yeah, it's and a bit, it's not like a hat like, that keeps you warm. It's a fashion no. hat. Like so yeah, it, it's like sure, a fascinator. It <laughs> yeah, it's like a fascinator of some pers- persuasion, I guess you could say. Um, and now I'm trying yeah. to remember. I can't remember if it's like. Because it's an upside-down boot. So the place where your ankle yeah. is is where your where the head is. But what I can't remember is if... I think, isn't it, where the heel of the boot is facing forward and then the toe She's got, is like, the toe backward. of the boot is at... The toe of the boot is at, like, her forehead. And the heel of the boot is, like, in the middle of her head. Okay. Okay. Um, this was incredible... Yeah. I did like this look for its strangeness. Yes. Um, yeah, same. And it's like strangeness, but as you said, it's like work. It worked too. Like, yeah, like she didn't was, look like she didn't look like. Um, clearly, it's wacky woman with but it like on head. <laughs> yeah, but she didn't look like in even like like in the world. It made sense, right? Like it didn't seem like. Oh, she's supposed to be crazy, right? Like the, it right. seemed like that was pretty normal. 
Yeah. Because I think oh, yeah, somebody that else wears a boot on their head, like a shoe on their head later, later on. too. Yeah. It's later yeah. on. She wears it again in a different context. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm now just like looking at it again, and it is like such a weird choice. Um, <laughs> but so anyway, they arrive at the restaurant. It's clearly some sort of a setup for the two children. Um, the two women are blabbering about all kinds of plastic surgery that they're going to be doing. Um, the menu, again, there were interesting touches. Like the menu was a digital menu. I'm not sure if you noticed that. Um, I didn't. They had, and so they had pictures of food. And then the, again, a thing that I'm not sure if it was a bit or not was like the, the waiter kept telling Sam, you need to tell me what number you've ordered, not like the food not what it's called. Like, just tell me the number. Oh, oh okay. And so when the food arrives, though, it's just weird lumps in different colors. <laughs> and I wasn't sure what that meant either. Like, if that's just what food in the future is like. Um, but then weirder. <laughs> I hope not. I, oh God, that that is one of the things I don't like. It's so much discussion and coverage in the future of people eating like pellets and pastes and <laughs> goops yeah. and gels and you know what here's what I'll say if that comes true and I'm still around kill me um I won't Just be around kill me I won't be around for long is what I was gonna say like the the day that like food we become food becomes like no longer important in terms of like enjoyment like it's right. just purely for sustenance um i'm out <laughs> yeah 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 no if someone tries to tell me oh just drink this shake it's got all the nutrients you need for the day and you won't get hungry and like this is everything a body needs there those things already exist and i i shan't be a part of it um <laughs> I just, shan't. yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. Same. I I just don't uh, think I could. I I don't think I could. I could not take out the you know and whatever psychoanalyze me if you want, but like I could not take out the enjoyment of food eating and no no and want to like continue to live (laughs) which which sounds like really really fucked up but like there's to me it doesn't but you know I get right but like I mean there's so many like there's so few like simple joys in life I feel like anymore and like that is one that has like stayed constant for me (laughs) that is I sound really sad but like (laughs) It is true. It's, yeah, I totally get what you mean. So they're eating these disgusting food lumps. And then there's this massive explosion, which we never really get a clear read on if there are terrorists. And if there are terrorists, what are are they terrorizing and what are they doing? Um, But so there's this explosion. Um, what's wild about this is that this is a very large explosion, but the, everyone in the restaurant who is unaffected by the explosion just keeps going as though nothing is wrong. Um, mm-hmm. which again, I think is weirdly prescient about where we are now in the realm of terrorism. Um, in terms of like, most of us do just carry on 
with our day, you know, and our lives. And if mm-hmm. anything, it's like, oh crap, there was like a bomb or a something that happened in whatever part of town. I got to drive over to that part. I'm of not going to be able to get home. Gross. You know, yeah. like there's very little concern totally. for like what might have happened. What could have caused this? Did anyone get hurt? Like, oh, um, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I sometimes think. The, the hopefully this isn't too dark but like I sometimes think about like if I I did not live in New York on 9-11 and if I had like thinking about how I like maneuver in the city if I had lived in New York at that time I am positive that like my th- part of my thoughts at least on that day you know if I had been in Manhattan would have been obviously like terrifying and all of the like emotional stuff right. but also like WTF and how, how do, do I, I get, get home? home? Like, yeah. because, yeah, when that kind of stuff happens in a city, like, that really, there are lots of logistical nightmares that happen um, alongside, you know, the emotional turmoil. I mean, I feel like I remember from that day particular people saying that in some cases they were walking, like, 20 miles to some, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, what would, yeah, absolutely. Like, what would have happened and what did happen was that the subways were shut down, obviously, like all like sure mass transportation was like yeah, all of that was shut down. People were walking over the Brooklyn Bridge. If you if you lived in like Jersey, I'm not really sure like what was going to happen to you. Like I think you would have been like I need to stay in a hotel or something like or have someone maybe come maybe or up like. If you had a car and I guess maybe, but I don't know if they like closed all the bridges. I haven't, I don't really don't know. Like, but I, I know for me, if like, well, I can't imagine what my life would have been at the time. It would have, you know, who knows? I lived in Manhattan for a time, so maybe it wouldn't have been a big deal. Or I would have, if I live where I do now, I would have had to walk from Manhattan through all the way down to, you know, yeah, I would have had to walk more like seven or eight miles, but yeah, I'm sure some people walked like miles and miles home. Right. Because yeah. there was no option. Yeah. So this is like, you know, nobody is affected by this explosion even at all, seemingly. Um, yeah. We Not even then, the people so much in the restaurant that exploded. No, they continue to eat and the quartet <laughs> the quartet just continues to play. Like um Yeah, it's kinda like the Titanic. It's like sinking and they're like, Well Just get going. Yeah. Um, so then we go through another dream sequence and now Sam is, in addition to kind of this free angel form that he envisions, he's also dreaming about Jill. Um, Mm. this time when he wakes up, the reason I think that he wakes up is because his house has gotten really, really hot. And so he calls central services for a heating technician, but can't get through. So in response, he decides to sleep with his head in the refrigerator. Um, I kind of get that. Yeah. This is something that on a hot day, you do find yourself sometimes thinking, like, especially if you don't have AC. I mean, I've never done it, but... It, could yeah. this be a solution to a problem? Um, when he oh, wakes yeah. up, he is confronted with what turns out to be the missing person, Archibald Tuttle, 
played by no less than Robert De Niro. Um, don't really this know. This is a very about wild. This. Like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's super. I was, it's. I was not prepared to see Robert De Niro in this movie. And the funny thing was, I wasn't, and yet at the same time, I had, like, looked up the cast to remind myself what this movie was, because unfortunately I had seen it before, which was, like, what the fuck is going on here? But, like, um, and I was like, Robert De Niro? What the fuck? Um, So even though I knew he was in it, I still was like, oh, him. (laughs) Yeah. No, it was a wild thing. And so he turns out to be, and again, I'm not joking when I say this. A rogue heating and cooling technician. Mm-hmm. And in this world, apparently, that's a f- he is a terrorist um, because he doesn't want to work for central services. He wants to work on his own. And so he comes to fix Sam's heating problem. They have a bit of a chat. While this is happening, however, central services do show up, and then we get another intriguing set of cameos in the form of Bob Hoskins and Michael Palin. Um, Michael Palin was less recognizable to me because I think he's a bit more of a fixture in British TV and movies. Um, But Bob Hoskins, Mm. of course, I clocked immediately. Yeah, wait, Um, hold on a second. He is... Wait, who is he? He is the guy who plays Eddie Valiant in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, for one. Um, oh gosh. He, uh, he is the main, basically the main human character in that movie. Um, okay, okay. He's okay, also okay. he's he's a British actor, but he also has done weirdly. He was in the weird Super Mario Brothers movie as Mario, I think. Oh. Um, oh wow! Yeah, very. I think weird. I can sort of picture him. Yeah, yeah. You, if you looked him up, you would know. I guarantee you, you yeah. would recognize him. So they show up, and because Tuttle is there, uh, Sam distracts them by asking for Form Twenty Seven B Slash Six, which somehow turns uh, into a problem, and they leave. Um, Once they leave, Sam tells Tuttle that the Ministry of Information is looking for him, to which I think Tuttle says something like, thanks, pal, and then he, like, ziplines away into the mist, (laughs) um, which is weird. Oh, my God. Uh, Then we follow Sam back to... To say the least, I suppose. There's so much more that's weird, but, like, that's weird. We follow Sam back (laughs) into his office where we learn that Buttle, the person who was taken into custody accidentally, has now died as a result of this being in custody. And Mrs. Buttle is entitled to a refund. Um, However, she doesn't have a bank account, so they can't automatically send her the payment. Um, now just imagine a a world where your husband is taken from you. You are given no information about what has happened and people want to be so kind of like, and you don't have a bank account disconnected from their role in your husband's disappearance and subsequent death that you would just receive like a bank transfer at some point. 
in your account. Uh, oh, as like a sorry? Like, yeah, what does that it would be mean? like, well, right. Because like the receipt that she was given earlier was like because of his value, right? Like his monetary value. And so now that he's dead, she's mm. entitled to that value. So she never, she would have never received an official death notice. She would have only ever gotten this check or this bank transfer. And from that, she would have had to infer that her husband died. Yikes. Yeah. Pretty, pretty bleak. So. Yeah. This is, however, though, the giving of a, uh, of a refund apparently is the job of the records department. So Kurtzman is like, well, what can we do if she hasn't got a bank account? And Sam is like, well, I can uh, take what you sign the check. And then I'll take it to her so that then she can cash it like wherever she likes. Um, Mm -hmm. And they decide that's what they're going to do. So he heads over to something called the Shangri-La Towers. Um, This place is not Shangri-La. This is where the Buttles and Jill live. When Sam tries Mm -hmm. to give her the refund check, Mrs. Buttle is super upset and she says like give me his body my husband is dead give me his body uh which of course sam is not able to provide um and then there's kind of a growing uh argument between the two of them um and so sam eventually manages to leave the apartment and as he's doing that he notices jill the upstairs neighbor and decides to follow her because she has packed up all of her stuff and seems to be clearly leaving. Um, but when they have a brief interaction, she reveals her name is Jill, Jill Layton. Which, when mm-hmm. Sam returns to his office, he tries to look her up, which is not cool. That is stalker behavior. Um, (laughs) if you work in some kind of records office or a law enforcement agency and you meet someone in the context of your job or anywhere for that matter, and then you decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look up this person in my special database of crime files. Um, (laughs) you really can't be doing that. That is poor form. Um, yeah. Now, luckily... His efforts get hampered because Jill's information is classified. And so he wants to learn more about Jill, but then basically realizes that he wouldn't be able to do that in his role in records. He need, So he ultimately needs to take the promotion to information retrieval that his mother has arranged for him. Um, and so that's basically what happened. Uh, there's a dream sequence that happens here where, um, as you can see from the outline, I said, Sam's looking for Jill and she's in a sky cage being pulled by monster babies. Um, we don't really need to (laughs) linger on that, but it is rather disturbing. Um, when, to say the least, (laughs) when Sam returns home, Um, he finds that all of the ducts in his home have been taken out of the walls. It looks like a complete shit show in there. Um, and Bob Hoskins and Michael Palin are back 
from Central Services with the form that he requested, um, and they discover the uh, piece of machinery that Tuttle put into the wall. And so they, so then the problem becomes Sam now seems to be involved with terrorists. Um, mm-hmm. This is a bummer for him that will become worse and worse. But in the meantime, he gets a singing telegram inviting him to a party at his mother's house. Um, the singing telegram was horrible in every way. Um, the woman is basically shrieking and I had no idea that it was an invitation to a party. I couldn't distinguish words at all that this woman was saying. Um, he then arrives at his mother's house, which is way nicer than his house. Um, and it seems like to me her facelift has happened now um, and she looks great. Uh, I mean, she does. The actor looks great, but like, and she's like talking to some younger men and of course feeling great about that. Um, Sam and Shirley are once again uh, pushed together and they reveal that neither one likes the other. Most important to this scene is the fact that Mr. Helpman is at this party and Sam says to him that he's changed his mind about the promotion and he does, in fact, want to become part of information retrieval. Uh, Heltman says yes. And so then the next day, Sam comes for his first day as a member of information retrieval. And basically, information retrieval, we can think of as um, like a secret police force, almost, I think is probably the best mm-hmm. uh, What's the word? Analogy. Um, yeah, yeah. When he arrives, he meets his boss, Mr. Warren, quite briefly. Mr. Warren is surrounded at all times by a massive mob of underlings shouting things, asking for attention. Mr. Warren shows Sam to his new office where uh, the office, I couldn't believe it was literally a closet. Um, oh yeah. Where, oh, this office was so depressing. I couldn't believe it. Like, especially because it is such a corporate thing where Mr. Warren is like, oh, you should be really pleased because you finally have your own office and all you see is a door and you're like, okay, great. Yeah. And then he opens the door and like, it's the door almost like hits the desk in front of it and (laughs) it can't be more, it can't be more than like five feet across the whole space. Um, and funnier, I will say this was a bit funny to me. The, the desk is sticking out of the wall in the office. And I at first thought like, oh, it's like a pullout situation because there's so little room. He's pulling it out. But then what we learn is that in fact, the desk is, the desk space is shared across two offices where there's a hole in the wall where the desk just goes between. And so uh, Sam gets introduced to his, um, not office mate, but office neighbor, because they're sharing the same desk, and they keep pulling back and forth to have more desk space. Um, in the, this is also when Sam asks his coworker to look up Jill's information because he, has, he doesn't have access yet. 
Um, which the coworker eventually says they will do. Um, this is where my typed outline ends because I ran out of time this week. But basically, <laughs> Sam uh, gets information about Jill, which then prompts him to go to the 50th floor where he runs into a secretary who is transcribing a torture session that she is overhearing. Um, and then he learns that his friend Jack, who we, would, we had mentioned before, is actually the torturer. This is how that Buttle guy died, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when Sam speaks to Jack, he comes out and he's covered in blood at first. Um, and this is when Jack says, well, it's not my fault that Buttle died because I didn't know that he had a heart condition. I wouldn't have pushed him so hard. And Sam is like, well, of course, because you had Tuttle's information, uh, cause you thought he was Tuttle. Um, Jack has no problem with this whatsoever. Um, Jack also explains that Jill is understood and suspected of being a terrorist. And so Sam really needs to stay away from her. Um, Sam doesn't believe this and he tries to reason with Jack. Um, and that doesn't work either. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else important of this scene. Not really. Um, at the end, however, as Sam is leaving, speaking to Jack, he gets in his elevator and he sees that Jill has come to the Ministry of Information in search of Buttle again. Um, and in this time, he like takes Jill into his custody uh, for some reason. And Jill is not a fan of this. Um, this is where they have that weird scene where she's like driving the truck and he's trying to ingratiate himself with her, but she's like, no, just get out of my fucking truck. Um, (laughs) and in fact, she even kicks him out at one point, um, like physically with his, her legs, she kicks him out of the cab. Um, but she manages, he manages to kind of cling on to the front of the truck. Um, and ultimately, she allows him to stand in the truck where she drives out to some weird factory where there's lots of flames for some reason. I don't know what the factory <laughs> is responsible for making. Um, fire. It's a fire factory. Oh, you, you do need a well-created fire. Um, and so <laughs> she, when the main point of this is, is that she goes out to this kind of remote fire factory and picks up a package from a mysterious coworker. Sam immediately is asking what's in the package. She refuses to answer. Needless to say, he then assumes, of course, that she is a terrorist and this is some sort of a bomb. But he's also kind of like thrilled, I guess you could say, by his proximity to this crime or potential crime as he imagines it. Um, they drive into like back into the city and specifically to what appears to be a mall that's again all like dressed up for Christmas we see a little girl asking Santa for her own first credit card as a gift um 
I also did somewhat mildly enjoy that there was a group that now exists in this world called Consumers for Christ, um, and they're having a parade down the mall, uh, kind of main drag. Um, Mm -hmm. This is when another bomb goes off, and Sam is convinced that this is because it's the bomb that's in the package that Jill had, Um, but of course, when he actually gets close, he sees that the package was not, um, a bomb, but was like, I forget, some kind of object that was meant to be a bribe for somebody. Um, Mm -hmm. the police arrive, they take, uh, both Sam and Jill into custody, but are separated, they're separated from each other. Um, when they get to the Ministry of Information, uh, Sam is yelled at by uh, Mr. Warren. The paperwork associated with these various problems is piling up. Um, Jack comes back into the scene to explain that Jill is suspected of interacting with Tuttle. Um, and that basically Jack is like, you are not going to do yourself any favors if you keep hanging out with this woman or seeking her out. You need to leave her alone. Um there's Sam basically doesn't believe that is what it uh, kind of amounts to. Mm -hmm. So when he returns home that night, because of his already like rather slight association with Jill, he is already experiencing various troubles. Um, When he arrives at his home, the house that already looked nuts because all of the ducts were taken out of the ceiling and the walls now looks even worse. Even more stuff has been pulled apart. (laughs) And they basically are like, you don't live here anymore because the problems, like the construction problems are so bad they need to fix everything. Um, Tuttle and Jill show up. And the Tuttle appearance is inexplicable. I don't know why that's here in the story. Um, Jill asks who Tuttle is. So again, um, if she is a terrorist in this world it's not she has no connection to Tuttle um Sam then takes Jill to his mother's house uh because she can hide there because she's away on a Christmas trip with more plastic surgeons apparently um (laughs) and I will say this is like the one part of the movie that I thought was done well and I kind of enjoyed is so They're in the house. They've barely really meaningfully interacted. And there's this very long shot of us waiting for them to kiss. Where they keep kind of moving closer and closer and closer and closer. But still, like it takes a solid, I would say, 30 seconds before the kiss actually happens. And I thought that was pretty good. Like, And especially... What I liked about it was that both um, actors do a really good job of like showing the anticipation and having like different expressions on their faces over this time. Um, Mm -hmm. This very passionate kiss then basically galvanizes Sam to be like, I'm going to help you with your legal problem, but you have to stay here while I do it. Like, don't leave the house. Don't contact anyone. Don't do anything. I'll be back. He returns 
to the Ministry of Information, um, where he goes to speak with um, Mr. Helpman, the big boss. Uh, but unfortunately, while he doesn't manage to speak with Helpman, he does see a printout about Jill basically saying, like, she's going to be collected by information retrieval. So, like, her life is basically over. Um, he comes back, and, oh, that's what it is. He also starts meddling with the paperwork about Jill, but we don't fully see what he's done. When he returns to his house, her, or his mom's house, um... Jill's been transformed into the vision that he's having in his dreams. Like, she's put on a wig. Right. Um, she's got, like, a very, like, diaphanous negligee sort of thing on. Um, and then he explains, like, I've fixed your problem because when I saw that printout coming out, I basically like, zhuzhed the records, so now you're officially dead. Um, and you can, like, start over again. Which, I think I would like to be consulted about that before someone does it on my behalf. Like, even if I am in legal trouble and death ultimately, or a fake death is the only way out, I would like to make the choice rather than someone tell me that's what they've done. Um yeah. The other, again, mild enjoyment that I got from this movie is when she hears that, her response is, care for a little necrophilia. And then they start having Yikes. Sex. Uh, yeah, it's Yikes. a bit dark, but I did, I was like, there's so little to enjoy in this film. I sort of enjoy that. Um, the next day turns out to be Christmas Day. And... It starts out okay. Uh, Jill and Sam wake up. Jill has found a very large bow to wrap around her naked breasts. Um, and she encourages Sam to unwrap it. No sooner does that happen than the police bust in through a, a circular hole in the ceiling. Um, there are various shots. We don't really see what happens. Back at the Ministry of information sam is now in one of those prisoner bags and he's being questioned about his associations with jill and various potential terrorist groups now what you may or may not have noticed in this scene but i'm curious to know so we're seeing the the quote-unquote like legal questioning procedure from sam's perspective so through the little like weird rectangular hole where eyes are in these bags but did you also notice that there were, like, shadows on the wall of the rooms that he was in where you could see other people in bags hanging from the ceiling? Whoa, I don't think I noticed that. Yeah, and what is even weirder still, so even in a previous scene, which I didn't mention, like, when they're, when they're in the police truck, people are hanging from these bags from the ceiling. So there's some kind Yikes, of like... I hate that. Yeah. And then in this scene, not only are people hanging from the ceiling, but you can see that they're on like a strange sort of conveyor belt. 
that carries them through Oof. the different offices of these different legal procedures. Don't um, like that. Yeah. And basically what a lot of this is showing us is that the legal system in this world has, again, become so driven by money and commercialization that like some of the people he sees on his way to being uh, incarcerated are people who are asking like, well, you really want to like buy such and such insurance to make sure, you know, like your time here is like not misspent and various weird stuff. When all said and done, he ends up in a padded room where Mr. Helpman, who is dressed as Santa because he's on his way to the company party, um, Helpman is basically like, you're running up an enormous bill here by insisting that you're innocent. Uh, you, You hung out with Jill. You hung out with this tunnel guy. That means you're not innocent. You just, you would be better served to just confess. And Sam mm-hmm. doesn't do that. He then ends up in a weird room that kind of is a bit like, did you ever see any of the like early on X-Men movies with Patrick Stewart as Professor X? Yeah. He's in the wheelchair. Yeah. It's been a while, but yes. So remember how (laughs) Professor X had like psychic powers and when he went into that special room he could like amplify his psychic powers and like see people all over the world gosh it's been a long time sort of but it not fully I don't fully remember that but I believe you yeah so the main point of it is is that there's a room in that movie and the room is called Cerebro and Cerebro oh, basically okay. has that like kind of walkway out to the center and then it's like a big circular room oh, where you kind okay, of like sit okay, in the okay. middle on this. Yes, like, yes. Okay, I'm, okay. It's coming back to me. Okay. So Sam is in a room that's kind of looks like this, only it's made out of all poured concrete. And he's mm-hmm. like in, he's similar too actually as well because he's got like a weird headgear device. On him. Oh, right, 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 right. And then a man in a baby monster mask comes in. Hated that. Hated it. I really didn't like it. And he ultimately reveals that it's his friend Jack. And now we have a better understanding of truly what Jack does. He um, tortures people. Wears a baby mask. (laughs) Wears a baby's mask and tortures people to have them confess to the, the crimes that they're accused of. Um, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, right. While they have a they have some words, the two of them, and then as Jack is about to do something to Sam's brain, presumably, someone from above shoots Jack in the head. People on zip lines, including Tuttle, descend into this room. They've come to rescue Sam there's a big shootout that carries all throughout the Ministry of Information and ends up kind of concluding on the front steps of the building where Sam blows up the Ministry of Information and again this was also a bit that I think they used in Hudsucker Proxy where the after the explosion like papers are raining down 
onto the ground, um, mm-hmm. which I think was also a thing that did happen in 9-11 as well. Like um, when a big office building yes. blows up, then all the various papers yeah. start to fall from the sky. Yep. So, yeah, um, totally. yeah. so then uh, we have some more kind of escape situations and some very weird imagery where Sam is like running from the cops in the hopes of finding Jill. There's that weird kind of like funeral scene where Sam opens a casket. Well, yeah, so this is when um, his mom in shoe hat returns briefly. Um, <laughs> and I think this time she's wearing a black boot because she's at a funeral yeah. for her friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when he opens the casket of what remains of this woman, it's just jelly and bones that slide out, which is really <laughs> depressing so and concerning. Um, then Sam has yet you know, another- it's a good d- metaphor. For, it's a good metaphor though, for like not taking life too seriously, because at the end of it, we're all going to just be jelly and bones. So yeah, like, I mean, we're kind of always- cares? It, you don't have to wait for the end. We're I jelly we and bones right now. Um, <laughs> That's so gross. It's it, no, I. You know what? I forget who who or Isn't what. Isn't like, it so weird me, too? Like, like I'm sitting in a room with a skeleton right now, and it's me. Okay, first of all, oh ew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did not know. That's yuck. I don't like that. That makes me really <laughs> uncomfy. But, but. But isn't it so funny, too, like, we, and I'm not saying I'm above this by any means, but, like, we are all just literal jelly and bones, and yet we are so judgmental of what ourselves and our and other jelly and bones people look like. And yeah. isn't that just, it's just so wild. Like, you're like, I don't like the way those jelly and bones are put together. Right, like, like that there's a configuration that is more pleasing than any other one is just kind of yeah, a wild thing to imagine. so weird. I didn't like when you said that you were sitting in a room with a skeleton that is your own. I don't like that. <laughs> I, that's what I was going to say is I actually, I wish I could remember who like first gave me that thought if it came from a podcast or a book or a TV show or whatever, but some media I consumed reminded me that like when you're in a room with people like with skeletons we are all there um or maybe it's like you know god what was the um oh it was when I watched The Shining again recently on the big screen and there are some scenes where right at the end when Shelley Duvall is like really losing her mind and she's running through different rooms and they show people like skeletons dressed in clothes sitting oh. around places and stuff. Would you would you say she's losing her mind in that movie? I think she's losing her mind because her husband has I lost his mind. I that's a very good question. I feel like she's like she's seeing those images because the hotel is showing her them. Like she's not yeah. hallucinating. But yeah. I also think that when she starts seeing those images, it breaks her brain. Like her understanding of reality is forever altered. It's so jelly and bones got it. Okay. Yeah. So all of these various 
Like, these are the final moments of the movie, and it's just kind of an onslaught of imagery, which really the movie as a whole has been, but now we're really, like, at peak onslaught. Um, Sam, like, also is in a dream state at various points um, where finally we return to reality. Because this is the other thing that is confusing about this part and how this ends, because the dreams that Sam has been having are not always clearly dreams while he's asleep like sometimes it seems like they're daydreams that he's having at various Mm. moments so the final moments of the movie are where he's having this daydream seemingly where he grabs a handle in a brick wall and walks through a door and when he walks through the door he seems to return to reality where Jill has gotten in her truck again and She's come to save him in the truck and they kiss and then there's this brief scene where it looks as though they've escaped out to the countryside and are living this different life away from terrorism, away from the Ministry of Information, etc. And I was like, oh, I guess maybe they did give a happy ending in the end. But then... Mm. The final, I forget how this even fucking ends. <laughs> the final bit of the movie is we're back in the poured concrete cerebro room. Yeah. And Sam is sitting with the weird headgear on his head. And he's just absently mind, absent-mindedly humming to himself the Brazil song. And Helpman and Jack mm-hmm. are looking at him. And basically... Um, I think Helpman says, like, he's gone now, right? And Jack is like, yes. Yikes. So Jack has done something. They fucked up his brain. His brain to basically neutralize Sam as a potential terrorism threat. And that's the end of the movie. Like, the uh. end of the movie is, like, um, the credits start to roll as we see Jack and Mr. Helpman walk out of the room Sam stays there and keeps humming this now very haunting tune. And that is the end of the movie. And when And I was like, I nearly, I nearly stood up and gave a standing ovation in my house alone. Just because it was was over. over. Yeah. No, I had a similar feeling of like, I have put in the time in this movie. I ran a marathon. And I really thought this was going to end in a certain way, which admittedly would have been more saccharine and not as much of a statement, but fair enough. It's like people, people were pissed. People were pissed about the ending of La La Land for similar reasons. Yeah, true, true. Um, And, and then you're going to do this to me where it's like, no, he's dead in his own brain, like living, whatever. But at the same time, I guess you could read it in a certain way as a happy ending because that's what Sam thinks his reality is now. So he's not aware of what all else is happening. So maybe it's okay? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the thing about being brain dead... This is oh so dark, but the the thing about being brain dead is who is it sad for? It's more. I, I mean, uh, I don't know. Maybe I can't say this, but it's like it's sad for the people 
around and, and death watching. sort of in general like it's sadder for the people left behind don't you think like yeah no matter what you believe in terms of like afterlife whatever if you don't even believe in it like that person who is no longer conscious is not experiencing that sadness that you are that they are gone right or whatever no. yeah so, they don't care yeah yeah I mean and I don't know I don't know quite what my point was but just like yeah it's I guess it's sad, but I was just so glad the fucking movie was over. And I just like, I didn't have any affection to any of the character for any of the characters in this movie. Like I did not, sure. I did not care. Like I just, yeah. it was, it was so beyond anything I ever wanted to watch. <laughs> I get it. So um, I, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well then I guess let's just slide into yawns and eye rolls. <laughs> Uh, which I am concerned about. Um, so <laughs> one yawn is this was scintillating. I was super engaged. Couldn't take my eyes off it. And Uh-oh. ten yawns is like I really, really wanted to sleep through most of this. <laughs> what would you give it? Ooh, yikes. I mean, generally I hem and haw and like have to think – but, you know, I got to go 10. Like, I was I was done. So it took me, like, four different sit-downs to watch, and each one felt painful. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was a 10 for me. Yeah, I mean, I can be slightly more generous, but only slightly. <laughs> I think I would give it an 8 um, mm-hmm. because I just, like I said at the top, there was nothing here that I was able to latch on to. I didn't really yes. understand the story. I didn't really yeah. understand the kind of visual yeah. vibe. Like, I couldn't yeah. really make heads or tails. Like there, like, there was always, like I said, there was always these things where I was like, I, if this were even just a little bit more something, then I would think I get yeah. it. You know, um, sure. I mean, and you and you asked me. Maybe I forget if you said this before we were recording or not. But you were asking me like if it was better or worse for me than the cell, which is yeah, sure. No one recalls one of the movies that like really has made me angry. You you show. were really mad at me specifically for making yeah, you watch. It. I don't. I <laughs> yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure what it was about that movie in particular that made me, like, so heated like that. Because this one, I don't know if I feel the same, like, anger response. Maybe I was just, like, in an angry place. I don't know. But, like, I don't feel the same anger response. But it just, like, I I hated it just as much. I just Mm. don't – I don't know why it didn't give me that same, like, anger response. But, like, (laughs) it – maybe it was just, like – I really honestly don't remember the cell well enough to remember why it made me so, like, angry, angry. Because I there was a lot of the same stuff where, like, I know I didn't understand really what was going on in the cell. I didn't know what was going on in this one. But for some reason in this one, it was, like, I don't even, like, care that I don't know for some reason. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Because yeah, I, I think, think in this one, it felt like no one was going to know. That's the way I think <laughs> I felt. Like, where this is unintelligible. Like, and it's, like, somebody is making gobbledygook and acting like it's real when the, I think the cell, I felt like 
I should be understanding it and I'm not. And that's what made me angry. Yeah, that's I fair think enough. maybe that's the distinction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's right. Because I, weirdly, though, what unifies them both, I would say, is that <laughs> both are like arty concept movies. Yeah. Yeah. Where the story is a bit incidental to the artiness. Yeah. But somehow... Yeah, and I don't love that. Yeah, I that's not... That's, like, many a person doesn't care for that. So that's fine. But, like, somehow the cells version of that was something I could at least buy into in various ways that I know you couldn't, but still. Like, this one, (laughs) I was just, like, I feel like I don't even have a leg to stand on here in terms of like, I think I get what this movie is doing, but then just as I think I'm getting it, it seems like it's now it's doing something else. And I did not even, I didn't even have like one single grasp at any point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was just ponderous. Like the, the pacing was weird. Um, you know, like if, if even the visuals everything. had been more fun, maybe I would have been more patient. Like, but just everything sure. was like, oh boy. So then eye rolls. Um, one eye roll is, I guess effectively the eye roll category is like, how much do I buy into this world? So one eye roll is, I bought in. And 10 eye rolls is like, absolutely not. Under no circumstances did I buy in what we did. Yeah. Yeah, I think I got to go 10 again because I did not get this world. So I had no way to buy in. I didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. I mean, again, I I will be (laughs) slightly more generous. But yeah, I'm saying kind of eight, I suppose, because, um, yeah, I, I just was like, I don't, I want... This is tough, too, because it was already such a long movie, but... (sighs) So long. I just was like, I need more exposition. I need something to help more something, More more something and less of some other of the stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Like, because, like, even even the storyline, such as it was, I was like... Is this even a storyline? Is what I think is going to happen? No. It, is that what's happening? Like, I'm not sure. <laughs> like, um, I'm not sure either. So then, the true dreaded question, did you like this and would you recommend it? Yeah, no and no. Like, <laughs> period, end of sentence, no and no. Um, I would never, ever... Um, no, just literally like full stop. No. Yeah, I've got to say this is unusual for us to be in such agreement here. Um, I didn't <laughs> like this, and I wouldn't recommend it because even what sometimes can save a thing in terms of recommendation is like, oh, it had a cool look. The soundtrack was good. Sure. Like, you know, the actors sure. were cool. It's fun to see somebody when they're young. You know, like there's always. Maybe yeah. something that might. I wouldn't like, want to put anyone through this. I would no. never want someone and there's, to experience and that. The, and the thing is, is like even some of our lesser tier movies, we've often said something like maybe watch fifteen minutes just to get a yeah. Feel. 
you know. This is like, I wouldn't even know what 15 minutes to suggest. No. No, because, no, because even if you, like, even if you, like, scrubbed through it, you'd be like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is this part? I don't know. Like, you could, you could, what I would do, what I would say, you could find a still of uh, (laughs) Mona wearing the shoe hat. (laughs) and that would be all you need to know from this movie that would be it yeah I agree like it's just really I don't know I just don't know what this is and maybe we are limited in our American capacity which is why this movie didn't do well in the United States Um, I won't won't pretend I won't pretend that like my brain is the problem (laughs) (laughs) I can I could I can appreciate that like I am dumb and like that it could be me but I stand by everything I said. <laughs> Fair enough. Well then, and that is the true spirit of Christmas. No forgiveness. <laughs> no no flexibility. No nothing. Nope. Um well, I would say despite the movie being a rather uh fat turd I would say this is a great kickoff <laughs> to our Christmas season series of films. Uh, uh, I look just forward. You wait. It's going to get so much better. Yeah. Well, next week will be one of your selections of a Hallmark-ish Oof. variety. So stay oh, tuned. Buckle up. For that. Buckle <laughs> up. <laughs> and as always, I am Sarah. And I'm here with Amy. And we will see you next week in space. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of See You Next Week in Space. This is a production by Amy and Sarah Walsh with artwork provided by Riley Brown. If you'd like to learn more about our show, please check us out at seeyounextweekinspace.com or follow us on Instagram at seeyounextweekinspace. Until the next one.